While Shannon ate his dinner, nothing but a bowl of salad, I began the interview asking, When he first came over from the Yankees, did Mike have any trouble fitting in with the Cardinals? Shannon looked up from his salad and said, You mean Roger? Uh, yeah, right. Roger. I blurted in consternation at the mix-up. Shannon went into a lengthy answer, and I listened intently while I studied his face. So this is what Mike Shannon looks like and sounds like, and mentally formulated my next question. And then I did it again. How instrumental was Mike to the team's success in 1967 and 1968? I asked. You mean Roger? said Shannon again. Yes, I mean Roger. Boy, he must think I'm goofy, I thought in exasperation. Thankfully, I got through the rest of the interview, which turned out to be pretty darn good, without referring to Roger Maris as Mike, and Shannon kindly never questioned me about my Freudian slips. From one moon man to another, thanks, Mike. A few years later, my baseball name caused somebody else some confusion, yet that person also spared me any embarrassment. I was working on a juvenile biography of Johnny Bench and I wanted to talk to former Cincinnati Reds manager Sparky Anderson, who had been Bench's manager for most of the great catcher's career. At the time, Anderson was managing the Detroit Tigers. I called the Tigers' offices, the operator switched me promptly to the clubhouse, and to my surprise, Sparky almost immediately came on the line. Sparky, this is Mike Shannon, and I got no further than that. Mike! How you doing? It's good to hear from you. How's the ball club doing? When he had been with Cincinnati in the National League, Sparky had gotten to know that other Mike Shannon as an opposing player, and later as a Cardinals broadcaster. Sparky, I said soberly, I'm not that Mike Shannon. I'm a writer in Cincinnati. Oh, well, what can I do for you, Mike? Sparky asked. I told him what I was up to, and then he proceeded to patiently answer all my questions, fully and graciously, and without the least hint of irritation, demonstrating to me that the reality of Sparky Anderson matches the image of Sparky Anderson as one of the nicest people you will ever meet in baseball. When I started working on this book, I realized that the idea of a book of baseball anecdotes was nothing new. However, since the typical baseball anecdote book has always repeated many of the same old stories, my goal was to write a book full of new anecdotes. Since baseball books have appeared in the last decade and a half with the frequency of home runs at Coors Field, I wanted the serious as well as the casual baseball book buyer to have a good reason to purchase this book. That reason is the fact that, with very few exceptions, the stories in this book have never appeared in any other baseball book. I hope you are entertained by the book. I feel confident you won't find it to be, as Yogi Berra would put it, deja vu all over again. There is nothing more fun in writing a book like this than meeting and talking to the people who supply many of the stories herein. The morning I spent at the home of Herman Flea Clifton is typical of the experience in that you never know when and where you'll find a good story.
Mr. Clifton was born in Cincinnati in 1909, but he grew up idolizing and modeling himself after the great Ty Cobb. Mr. Clifton realized his dream of playing for the Detroit Tigers, but he had the misfortune of being a natural second baseman at the same time that another Tiger named Charlie Geringer was in his prime. Although he was never a regular in his four major league seasons, Mr. Clifton spent about three hours of his precious time telling me his personal baseball story. Several times during our session, Mr. Clifton said, I hope I am telling you something that will be useful for your book. Although I assured him that he was being most helpful, the truth was that we concluded our interview without his having said anything that could work into an interesting story. I packed up my tape recorder, notebook, pens, and baseball encyclopedia, sincerely thanked him for his time, and started to walk out of the small kitchen where we had talked. You know, I remember something else, he said. He said this offhandedly, not knowing he was about to finally give me what I'd come for. But that's exactly what it turned out to be. A wonderful little baseball anecdote that came home in the bottom of the ninth. In addition to Mr. Clifton, I would like to acknowledge the following persons and publications for their help in compiling some of the stories in this book. Charles Alexander, Marty Apple, Baseball America, Baseball Bulletin, Baseball Digest, Baseball Weekly, Beckett Baseball Card Monthly, Bill Mazeroski Baseball, Tom Boswell, Bobby Bragan, Marty Brenneman, Bob Brigham, Nick Cafardo, The Chadwick Report, Elliot Cohen, Jerry Coleman, Robert Connolly, Jim Crowley, John Curtis, Ken Daly, Rick Dempsey, Glenn Dickey, The Diamond Angle, Dodgers Dugout, Tom Eckel, Charles Einstein, John Arardi, Charlie Feeney, Dave Fendrick, Tom Flaherty, The Flatbush Faithful, Foxy Gagnon, Peter Gammons, Joe Gergen, Joe Goddard, Wild Bill Hagee, Charles Henderson, Tot Holmes, Inside Sports, Stan Isle, Tom Jackson, Jack Jaddick, Lloyd Johnson, Cliff Catchline, Roger Kahn, Paul Kaplan, Charles Kaufman, Tyler Kepner, Dave Kindred, Peter Korn, Tom Kramer, Norman D. Kirkland, Ken Levine, Michael Lloyd, Rich Marazzi, Len Matusik, Michael J. McCarthy, Hal McCoy, Joe McGuff, Dick Miller, David Mariah, Edgar Monzel, David Navard, Dan Neville, The National, T.S. O'Connell, Old Time Baseball News, Greg Park, David Petrusha, Bob Hanjtera, Dan Quisenberry, Frank Rashid, a Red Sox Journal, Red's Report, Jim Reeves, Greg Rhodes, Glenn Sample, SCD, Gary Schatz, Mark Schmetzer, Mark Schraff, Jimmy Smith, The Sporting News, Alan Steinberg, Kit Steyer, Sweet Spot, Tough Stuff, Gordon Varell, The Wall Street Journal, John Warden, David Whitford, and Phil Wood. The Baseball Encyclopedia, The Ballplayers, and The Dixon Baseball Dictionary were also extremely helpful for spelling and fact-checking purposes.
Special thanks must go to my parents, John and Willie Shannon, to my kids, Megan, Casey, Mickey, Babe, and Nolan Ryan, to my all-star mother-in-law, Mrs. D, Betty Dermody, as she's known to the rest of the world, to my steadfast friend and supporter, Jerry Hazelbaker, to my editor at Contemporary Books, Nancy Crossman, for giving me the hit-away sign, and to her assistant, Alina Cowden, for being around to take my phone calls during rain delays. Most of all, I thank my beautiful and talented wife, Kathy, who has enriched my life to a magnitude beyond my poor abilities to express. Without her, this book, like most of the good things in my life, would never have been authored. Tales from the Dugout Sparky Anderson Players and managers have long complained of sports writers who make up quotes to juice up their stories. If the truth be told, sports writers haven't been the only ones guilty of fabricating copy. Tiger's manager Sparky Anderson, for one, has been known to stretch the truth like saltwater taffy, as Detroit writer Mike Downey found out at the beginning of the 1984 season. After the Tigers' fifth straight win to open the season, Downey noticed that Sparky was wearing under his jersey the same Domino's Pizza t-shirt, the hot ones, that he'd been wearing since opening day. Downey asked the highly superstitious Anderson if he'd washed the t-shirt yet. Anderson said that he hadn't, and that he had no intention of washing the shirt as long as the Tigers' winning streak continued. After Brett Saberhagen of the Kansas City Royals finally stopped the Tigers in game number 10, Downey offered to supply Sparky with a laundry detergent needed to wash the T-shirt.